Hi, welcome back to the National Association for Primary Education podcast. My name is Mark Taylor. I'm the Vice Chair of NAEP, and I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Lear. And I first got to know about Jonathan having interviewed Ian Gilbert, which he was on the, the podcast on episode 67, and having then watched some of the webinars and some of the things related to independent thinking and the great work they were doing. I wanted to kind of expand some of those amazing ideas and insights, and Jonathan was a guest on, on one of their webinars. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you. So can you start by giving us a background in terms of where you are in the education world, in terms of the, the, the location within the UK and where you fit within your school and the sorts of work that you do? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I am a, uh, I'm a teacher, um, a deputy head of a primary school in Sheffield. Um, it's a large inner city primary school. So we've got about 480 pupils. So that's kind of two form entry and then a nursery as well. Um, and we serve a really uh, interesting community. So uh, we're a Catholic school, but we've got relatively low numbers of Catholic children, around about kind of 27%, something like that. So we've got more Muslim children than we've got Catholic children. We've got big uh, Africa, African Caribbean community, again, lots of different African countries and denominations and faiths and what have you. So it's, like I say, a really interesting mix. Um, there are about 43 different languages spoken across school. Uh, and we're also in the, the top 5% in terms of deprivation index nationally. Uh, so like I say, it's, it's a challenging context to work in, uh, but it's a brilliant one. I've been there now, I think this is my 23rd year as a teacher at St. Catherine. So I went as an NQT, started there. Uh, and like I say, as a teacher and now as a, as a deputy, as a leader in the school. Um, so, yeah, it's a fantastic place to work. Um, and I think in terms of the work that we've done, uh, really, um, the curriculum stuff began for us probably in earnest around about six or seven years ago. Um, and it was it was ultimately born out of a sense of frustration more than anything. Uh, and this was something I felt as a young teacher, because when I entered the profession, I, I entered just being desperate to teach. I wanted to teach kids. I wanted to teach kids. I wanted to, to help them. I wanted to kind of have this idea of, of education being around this kind of transformative thing. You know, you get the chance to, to, to change the life chances of these young people in front of you. Uh, and I was really excited about that. Uh, but then when I actually started teaching, um, all of that kind of energy and passion, um, it, it kind of almost drained out of me after about three weeks um, when the, the, like the, the harsh realities of teaching hit. And I realized that it wasn't about that stuff. It was, it was more about just survival. That's how it felt. And I, I felt like I was just clinging on. And when I began my career, it was the kind of, um, it coincided with the launch of the, the very first national strategies. Um, so we had the literacy hour and the numeracy hour being into, uh, kind of invented and launched into schools. And it was the beginning of like this, this bombardment with just more and more stuff being thrown at schools, more and more initiatives we had to employ or strategies we had to kind of embed in our classrooms. And I can vividly remember as a young teacher just feeling swamped by it all, uh, thinking, Do you know what, this is not why I got into teaching. But my response to it was just to, to accept that the people that were making the decisions, the people in the Department for Education, they must know what they're doing. That was my thought process. They must know what they're doing. They're sensible people. They've probably researched it. They'll be, do you know what I mean? They're, they're not just telling us to do it for no reason. So I just accepted it and did it. And it took me quite a few years to realise that actually the opposite was true, that those people making those decisions, sending that stuff into schools, were actually idiots by and large. Um, they, they didn't understand about the stuff that mattered the most to the kids in my classroom and in my school. And that's when I, I decided, well, I became a bit militant really largely out of the survival mechanism 
just to kind of get by. But I started kind of subversively ignoring stuff, um, ignoring some of the things that were kind of coming from the Department of Education. Um, and it, it became quite an ingrained pattern of behaviour, this subversive ignoring. Um, and, and really, that's where the idea for, for my first book came from. It's called Guerrilla Teaching. And, and I quite like the idea of, of, the, of a guerrilla teacher um, because I, I, I was under no illusions as a teacher in terms of changing stuff. I knew I couldn't change the thinking of the Department for Education or anything like that. But I thought, if I can't change stuff, then the very least I can do is to make a nuisance of myself. I, I can be more militant. And I think we need more of that in education. We need more teachers being militant, deciding on the stuff that these kids need and just doing that. More leaders in schools who are militant deciding on what's best for the community that we serve and then sticking to that. And so that kind of sense of militancy just developed. And when I became a leader in a school and we started looking at curriculum, it, it kind of spread across the school, this desire to, to do what was right, regardless of what we were being told. Um, and like I say, that was really the beginning, six or seven years ago, of us properly starting to tackle curriculum. And that's real that's real kind of fearless leadership isn't it in terms of what you can do is you can you can really see that this is what my pupil needs and <laughs> this is what they don't need but what I've got to deal in you're kind of this filter in the middle in terms of and like you say there's only so many hours in the day there's only so much effort you can put in and when you've got that child-centered idea of what you're trying to do then you have to do what's best you know so can you take us through that transition of of sort of being that sort of militant leader understanding what you wanted to do and was there any then sort of pushback and and kind of sort of I guess there must have been sort of a gray area between when you're doing that before you're then like you say you get more and more people on board and then that becomes the norm and then you can actually make those changes because I guess once you get through that area what happens is, is people see the benefits they see how everything starts to work they see the positivity of what you're doing despite all the things but you have to get there first. So can you sort of take us through that journey a little bit? Uh, I can. And, and actually, I mean, the transition was relatively easy. Um, and I think it was relatively easy because actually as teachers and as leaders in schools, people who are actively working with young people on a daily basis, we have a really strong sense of the purpose of education, of why we're doing this job. Now, ridiculously, we don't often talk about it out loud. Um, and, but we got to the point when we were thinking about cooking where we started to. And, and we realised something as we were talking about what we wanted for our kids in the broadest possible sense. You know, lots of us had been teaching for 10, 15 years at this point, And we hadn't really thought about it before. We'd always done curriculum. We'd always taken documents and delivered them at the kids and, and thought nothing more about it because that's what we were expected to do. But here we were at a point where we wanted to think differently. And all of a sudden we were talking about why we're doing it in the first place. And lots of the words that we were speaking about, um, it, they were the same. You know, we were talking about the fact that we wanted our kids to be happy. We wanted our kids to know that they were loved. Uh, we wanted our kids to be resilient, to be aspirational. Yes, to be knowledgeable, but also to be curious, to have that insatiable desire to, to, to find out. Um, and like I say, it was, it was like a collective agreement that this is what was important. And now I work four days a week in my school and I work the other day a week all over the country with all sorts of different schools and with all sorts of different groups from early years through to groups of head teachers and primary colleagues, secondary colleagues. Um, and it's something I go back to frequently, this idea of why we're doing it. And irrespective of what 
institution that individual's working in, or whether it's a group of leaders or a group of TAs, um, it makes no difference. We all come out with the same words. We all describe what we want for our children in exactly the same way. So for us lot in education, we are crystal clear about the purpose. So it didn't feel like there was any kind of internal battle, if you like, because like I say, we were in complete agreement. The problem we had is that that felt that it was in conflict with the, the, the thinking of the Department for Education. <laughs> and so this, again, we had this, this draft curriculum arrived, which became the curriculum we've now got in primary schools. And when I first read that as a leader, again, it was, it, I felt physically ill because it felt like we we're being dragged backwards. I mean, that is really what sparked these kind of conversations because we looked at that national curriculum document and I thought, that's not what we want for our kids. So what do we want? And so, like I say, the, the, the conflict wasn't an internal one. All of the teachers involved in the process understood why they were in education, understood the purpose of it. And so in terms of creating something that we felt was fit for purpose, we were all well on board with that. Like I say, the challenges lay in terms of dealing with this thing we had in front of us, because there's no getting away from the fact that, that we have a prescribed national curriculum that's given to us by the government. And we can't ignore that. But we felt, I suppose, the very least we can do is to hammer it into something that is fit for purpose, purpose, something that will serve the needs of our community. And so, like I say, that was the beginnings of that. And everyone was up for it. And every teacher that I've ever spoken to in all of the work that I do um, through the, the company that I work with, Independent Thinking, you get the same kind of um, same kind of message from teachers. They just it's an acceptance that, yes, this is what we want for our kids, but we're just not quite sure how to get there. So let's walk into that. How, how did you get there in terms of so you, you started with this is what we want with our children. Here's the curriculum that we have. And how does that then morph into what you actually work with on a day-to-day -day basis? I think in the first instance, um, it was about finding a way of articulating properly the things that we wanted for our kids. Because when you're talking about things like wanting kids to be happy and to be collaborative and to be resilient, they're kind of like these intangible abstract ideas. And that doesn't kind of align well with what's perceived to be a rigorous curriculum model. You know, because if it's going to be rigorous, it has to be pinned down, it has to be black and white, it has to be measurable. Um, that seems to be the, the predominant thought process around curriculum, certainly in terms of Ofsted, who use words like curriculum intent. Um, but really, when Ofsted use words like intent or implementation or impact, they are talking about the body of the curriculum, the content of the curriculum, and not why we're doing it. So when we first started to try and articulate our aims for curriculum, we went back to documents that already existed to help us do that. So one of the documents we, we kind of referenced was something called the Personal Learning and Thinking Skills Framework, which was originally produced for our Key Stage 4 colleagues for children leaving secondary school. And it was a, born out of a desire, I suppose, um, or a, a, an understanding that it's not enough for kids to be leaving the education system just knowing stuff. You also need other skills, competencies, attributes as well. And so we went to this document and we looked at some of the different areas on this document. And it had kind of headings like independent inquirers, creative thinkers, reflective learners, team workers, self-managers, effective participators. And when we looked at how that was defined, we thought, that's spot on that. Now, this is also in the current climate, the kind of stuff that gets dismissed out of hand that sometimes they get kind of uh, called soft skills or generic learning and thinking skills. And, and they're kind of frowned upon um, by that kind of knowledge rich brigade, if you like. 
But I think, again, that's really down to a misunderstanding about how we bring this about in, in schools. Um, because none of the stuff I'm talking about, none of those generic learning and thinking skills are about direct teaching. They're not about explicit teaching. It's not the content of your curriculum. We're not talking about that yet. You can't explicitly teach creative thinking or reflectiveness or, or collaboration. But what you can do is create the conditions. So right at the start of the, of the, the process, we recognize those things, not as being the content of curriculum, but as being the byproduct. If we get curriculum right, then the kids should develop all of those things. And it is perfectly possible to create a curriculum whereby none of those conditions are created. You can have that model, which is entirely transmission based. And even the language of the national curriculum, it encourages that children should be taught to, children should be taught about. Again, that transmission model, uh, Martin Haberman used the phrase, um, a pedagogy of poverty. And that's what curriculum can be reduced to. But for us, we knew if we, if we were gonna deliver this curriculum, and as a byproduct, we wanted all of these things for our kids. So that was us really as a school setting our stall out in terms of the first stages. Let's identify exactly what we want for these kids. Let's be specific about it and let's acknowledge it for what it is. We're not having lessons about learning how to become a, a collaborative global citizen. Um, that's not a learning intention in a lesson. You know, we'll, we'll teach the kids stuff. It's a byproduct. Um, and so that fed into our, 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 the, all of the, the thinking we did around why, I suppose, and those broad aims. And we did all of that work before we got to the content of curriculum. And for me, that's a massive worry at the moment in terms of education, and a, a particularly in light of the Ofsted framework. It's almost like schools have been encouraged to begin their curriculum thinking with the first eye intent. And, and that's wrong, that. There's stuff before that we need to be getting into. When you get to the intent bit, yes, it's massively important how we are sequencing knowledge through curriculum. And we spent huge amounts of time as a school developing that um, so that we've got very rigorous foundation to our curriculum. And it's then that rigorous foundation that gives us the ability to work in the creative way that we do with our pedagogy. And it really is that understanding, isn't it, of, yes, there are certain parts of curriculum that you need to have and like say rigorous foundations which enable you to build year on year um but it, it everything that you talk about you know it sounds it, let's start with the child let's talk about how I want to communicate let's talk about how our relationship is going to be because all this is it stems from the relationships you have with the people that you're spending all the time with both in terms of colleagues and also um, teachers to pupils as well, isn't it? And it's that kind of, I think that trust and understanding, which enables you then to flourish throughout that. Yeah, absolutely. And like I say, it's not, we don't di dismiss the, the, the idea that, that, that knowledge has to be carefully mapped and sequenced through curriculum. It does, but that's not the entirety of curriculum. Uh, it's a very narrow view of that. And certainly when we're thinking about outcomes of curriculum, you know, the outcomes are not just the stuff the kids will know and the stuff the kids will be able to do. We have to be thinking more broadly than that. We have to be thinking in terms of outcomes uh, around how the children will feel, what the children will think uh, as being just as valid outcomes as the, the knowledge and the skills that develop through the, the structures that we have in place. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Like I say, we spent time mapping out all of those progressions, but we did that in order to get us to the point where we could craft incredible opportunities for our kids, opportunities where they would not only 
become knowledgeable individuals, both in terms of propositional content, knowledge of what, and also procedural content, um, the knowledge of how. But with all of that, those generic learning and thinking skills being developed as a byproduct as, as we went along. So could you give us, um, what's the best way to phrase this? Give us an example of something which teachers will understand as being in the curriculum, which you frame, teach, work, experience, create the environment for, specifically in terms of how you do it in your school, in all the ways you're thinking about it, but I guess also in relation to probably maybe how you've seen it elsewhere, which has kind of got stuck in that sort of initial kind of Department for Education thought process, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think it, one of the, the best examples of was, I suppose, uh, shifting towards a more uh, child-focused approach, really, when it boiled down to pedagogy, was um, the way in which we dealt with the, the topics, I suppose, that we deliver. So that's a very traditional way of working in primary schools, to have these topics which connect different subjects within the curriculum together. Um, and we'd always done topics like that within our school, um, like schools up and down the country we'd used schemes of work that have been provided for us and we delivered them in these six weekly chunks and um, one of the first things we did was to decide to give ourselves more time and space um, because if you are genuinely interested in giving or enabling children to produce brilliant work beautiful work it can't be as a result of being on a treadmill where you've got this kind of high speed coverage superficial coverage of content and that's what it felt like a lot of the time for us, we were covering a lot of stuff, but none of it was that good. So one of the first things we decided to do was uh, to just stop with that, that model, that treadmill and, and, and work across an entire term, because that would give us the opportunity to, to enable those children to produce beautiful work, I suppose, incredible work. Um, and again, I suppose at the time that felt like a, a, a risk, but again, it just, it, it felt right. It became our philosophy, this idea of do less, but do it really, really well. Uh, and again, this was before the idea of mastery became fashionable. Again, you know, it was a, a few years before the kind of the mastery maths and things like that uh, gained traction in this country. Uh, but I suppose, again, looking back on it, that was absolutely our aim. Um, for most of my career, I could talk to you about what depth looked like in two subjects. But that was it. I could talk to you about depth in English and maths, um, but I couldn't talk about what depth looked like in art or in music or in design or in geography or in history. And again, that seemed like a missed opportunity. So we desperately wanted to, to create a curriculum that was about deep understanding, deep knowledge and gave the children an opportunity to produce brilliant work. Um, so that was our decision in terms of giving ourselves time and space. Uh, but then we also looked at, at changing our pedagogical model. So as I said, um, we'd always use these topics. Um, and in the first year of our curriculum development, we continued with that because you can't transform curriculum overnight. You have to kind of manage your expectations. And for us, that meant just doing one thing a year, getting our heads around it and then building on that. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened. In our first year, we, we made sure we got our heads around all of our progressions in terms of knowledge and skills, made sure they were properly embedded and just hoped that the topics we'd planned for our kids were better than the ones we'd had before. That was about it. 
But as we got towards the end of our first year, we continued to evaluate and reflect on how things had gone. And we realized there were limitations with that topic-based approach. Um, a good example would be a topic that we had in year six in our spring term. And it was a geography focused topic. And the content of the curriculum directly from the national curriculum document is around volcanoes, earthquakes, and natural disasters. Um, and so with a topic-based approach, what we do as teachers is sit down with a blank sheet of paper in front of you and you'd write down your topic name in the middle of your piece of paper. And so we'd write down, we'd, we'd jazz up some kind of topic name. We call it uh, the force of nature to get the kids interested in a bit engaged. That would go in the middle of your bit of paper. And then you'd do your little spider legs coming off the centre where you'd put all your different subjects and you do your cross-curricular links. And you'd be thinking, well, if I'm doing that in, in geography, then in science... I can be doing my forces because if I'm doing volcanoes and earthquakes, forces should go along with it. In English, I might be doing my non-chronological -chrono reports. I might be doing diary writing or journalistic writing that can go with it. Uh, in art, I can look at images to do with the power of nature. That's all fantastic. And then we start thinking about the outcome. What can I get the kids to produce or how can I get them to present their, their learning at the end of this topic, this term? And... Like I say, we started to think about that in, in the context of what we'd set out to achieve with our curriculum. And one of the key things we've been interested in right at the start was this idea of creativity, this idea of creative thinking. And as we thought about the process that I've just described, that topic building process, there was no doubt that it was creative. It was absolutely a creative process. But what struck us is that it was entirely dominated by us by the teachers at every single stage. We creatively came up with the fancy topic name. We creatively made the cross-curricular links and then creatively came up with an outcome. And then we delivered it to the kids. And in effect, they were just like the, the passive recipients of our brilliance. Do you know what I mean? That's what was going on. And they enjoyed it and they were engaged and motivated and everything. But ultimately we were in control of all of the, the creative bits. And that wasn't what we wanted. And the other thing that we noticed going through that process is that with those kind of topics, you ended up with this, this topic that you were really excited about as a teacher, couldn't wait to do with your kids. But then there was always a couple of subjects that didn't really fit in, a couple of subjects that were kind of left on the outside. And, and quite often they became a bit of an irritant, you know, because you wanted to focus on your topic and then you remembered, oh, I've still got to teach RE. Um, now, just to remind you, we're a Catholic school. You know, that's not a good situation to be in. Um, and, and yet it had happened. And then and beyond RE, the other subject that was kind of pushed to the sidelines was PS, PSHE. And I think actually there's a very good argument to say that those two subjects, RE and PSHE, are probably the most important subjects we ever do in school with our kids. And I don't care whether you're a faith school or not. I think the stuff you can get into in RE is stuff that matters in the world. The stuff that, that, that tells us about being human, about what that means. And, and so the model we had just, it wasn't doing what we wanted. And so what I developed instead was this idea of concept-based learning. And really this was a, a shift towards a more inquiry-based model. Uh, and just the very nature of the word inquiry suggests that the kids are part of the process rather than just recipients. And so that was a really key shift for us in terms of giving children some ownership of the curriculum. And what that looked like was basically, uh, you know, we started with the same bit of the curriculum. So in the example that I'm, I'm using, we'll go with the, the volcanoes, earthquakes, natural disasters. So that's still the starting point, national curriculum content. But instead of going for cross-curricular links, what we do instead is try and identify philosophical concepts that we could explore through that particular bit of the curriculum. So if we were going to do that, then we might be thinking of philosophical concepts like adversity or resilience 
or, or equality or change. Uh, and again, we, we created this bank of these kind of abstract philosophical concepts that would enable us to just get into some really interesting conversations with the kids, um, the kind of conversations that transcend just curriculum content. Um, and then we take those philosophical concepts that we picked out, maybe three or four of them, and we then use them to create the connections across the curriculum. So it meant that we were no longer trying to connect English or art or RE to volcanoes, earthquakes and natural disasters. Instead, we were connecting those subjects to the concepts, any one or more of the concepts. And what we found is that gave us a much greater scope. So in the olden days, if you were doing that topic in year six in art, you'd probably build a paper mache volcano for like the 10th year in a row. You know what I mean, screwed up balls and newspaper. I did it myself. I get that pedagogy of poverty. Um, but instead now, we've got an opportunity to look at a much broader scope in art. We can look at any artworks at all that deal with any one or more of those concepts. Um, in English, the age old problem of, of finding high quality text or novel to go with your topic. I don't need one. I don't need a book about earthquakes or volcanoes or natural disasters. Uh, I need a book that deals with any one or more of those concepts. I could go for uh, Kensky's Kingdom by Michael Morpurgo. It's not about natural disasters, but it's about adversity and resilience. I could go for the book Wonder. Again, adversity, resilience, just loads more choice. Um, what we would then do is take those concepts and frame them with an inquiry question. And that would be the starting point for the children. Uh, again, in this example, it might be an inquiry question like, um, does adversity always make us stronger? That might be the beginning. And that question was very deliberately designed to encourage more questions from the kids. So we'd be absolutely interested in their thoughts around that and their additional questions that they had beyond that. And that was then how those children would be involved in the inquiry, the inquiry and then shape the context of the learning throughout that particular term. So a real sense of kind of ownership from those children. We are bothered about what they've got in their heads. We wanna hear their thoughts, their ideas. We'll capture them and record them and stick them up on the wall. And then lots of those can then feed into the project and we can start to explore them. And I think what's incredibly insightful about that is the fact that you basically described two things which were identical because you still have to have the environment you still have to have the structure you still have to have the understanding but you just kind of moved it back into a whole different level which then enabled like you say that inquiry and, and things which start with the question then just give you that creativity don't they because it's that backwards and forwards conversation it's you know the thing that you haven't thought about as a as a teacher which comes from somebody which then I, I guess the thing that people may find tricky is the fact that it all becomes a little bit of a movable feast unless you've got a real strength in understanding of what your your community can do based on on everything that you've spoken about and I guess th does that particular sort of understanding come with experience or just uh, almost like a leap of faith from your point of view knowing that we don't know what the outcome is going to be because we haven't even had those questions and those conversations yet but I know that actually it's going to elevate us to the sorts of things that we said uh, you know from, from where you started yeah I think I think you're absolutely right I think there is that fear within us all as teachers of a, a lack of control um, and you know we, we feel our safest when we're in control of stuff in a classroom there's no doubt about that and frequently colleagues particularly um, up uh, key stage two colleagues who teach the older children when we look in on early years it's with a, a sense of absolute terror 
in terms of how on earth are you coping with that? Because to the untrained observer, it looks like a free for all. You've got these kids who are just going off and exploring whatever the chuff they want, do you know what I mean? And different lines of inquiry. How do you manage that as a teacher? That would drive me mad. And actually, I think it's a misunderstanding about how early years works. And in kind of clarifying that, it really helped us to reach a, a point of security. Um, what frequently happens in early years is, first of all, you've got early years practitioners who know their curriculum inside and out. So they know the learning and that learning is non-negotiable. Those teachers know what those kids need to need to know and need to be able to do by the end of foundation stage. What those teachers are experts at is allowing the children to control the context for that learning. And that's very different. Now, again, the knowledge of that and how that works gives you security as a teacher of older children. So all of a sudden we're saying, well, it's not free for all. As a teacher, you're keeping a tight grip on that procedural and propositional knowledge in geography. You know, you'll be teaching those kids about the aspects from the curriculum that they need to know. What we're doing here is allowing children control over the context for that learning. And that's, again, very different. As a teacher, it's not a complete relinquishing of responsibility. Do you know what I mean? Actually, we're keeping a very firm grip on what's going on within the classroom. But the children can then explore, like I say, these different contexts. Um, that made a big difference, I suppose, in terms of mentality and, and just how we felt about it. And it allowed us then to, to start exploring um, what it would be like in a classroom, what it would feel like in a classroom to have the children go down a particular tangent, if you like, um, in the knowledge, safe in the knowledge that, like I say, they still maintain that, that grasp on the learning. The thing I really love about that is the fact that you can really see the whole sort of arc of of that early years into when you go into all the way through to key stage two in terms of talking about primary, because what you've done is you've kind of developed that situation where it's much more organic because they must feel like this is what I know already, because like you say, in the in the earlier years, that's what you do naturally. It's what we allow children to do naturally, you know, preschool, you know, you're not necessarily dictating what they're playing today. You're just allowing it to be, and like you say, you're controlling the environment. Um, and and that kind of ability to see that all the way through to year six, I think, is 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 really, really interesting. But I think most importantly, like I said about kind of having hold of the reins enough to, to know exactly where that's going there's then not that it has to look a certain way and I think certainly from my experience that's where things start to get emotionally dumbed down for children in as much as they don't want to get it wrong they don't want to ask the questions they don't want to feel like they're they're seen to be not understanding or knowing because you've actually just reframed it that that's the starting place for everything and I think you know, we've talked about curriculum um, today, but I think the emotional and well-being and the and the personal impact of that, like you say, it's not quantifiable, but actually it's central to to the development of, of an education system and understanding that can really help us thrive. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's something we've really noticed with our children too, just that that removal of the the fear. Um, and again, I've got my daughters are in kind of secondary uh, school now in kind of years nine and ten. And, and you you go back to that that kind of pattern of guessing what's in the teacher's head thing. And, and that's the thing that instills that fear, because there's then a desperation not to be wrong, not to to be the one who, who makes the mistake. But I think for us, having that philosophical starting point, having that inquiry question, I don't care who you are, how intelligent you are. There is no answer to that question. 
And no matter how much knowledge you gain and how much wisdom you develop, you'll still won't have an answer. Um, and so I suppose when, we, when we're talking around those philosophical concepts, when we're giving them questions like, does adversity always make you stronger? There is that kind of acceptance that we can say anything, any thought that I've got in my head, I, we can talk about because it could never be the wrong answer. Um, and that's, it's benefited massively. And the other thing that's had a big impact on, on the way in which our children communicate and feel about communicating is um, philosophy for children, uh, which is a particular program, P for C, that we've used in our school for a number of years. Um, but it, it's become central, I suppose, to our work. And one of the big challenges that we've always had with our children is, is in part uh, language deprivation, given the kind of the, the, the socioeconomic challenge that, that is presented, I suppose, but then also the, the regulation of emotion as well. You know, um, being able to accept somebody else, one of your peers disagreeing with you or having a different opinion was frequently very challenging for some of our children. But again, creating a kind of a forum, a community, whereby we have these open discussions where there's no right and wrong, has created the, the climate whereby actually it's, it's, we can disagree, we can have different opinions, we can add to what other people have said, and we can offer the opposite opinion. And it's, it's, it's just part of the process. It's just part of what we do at our school. And I guess you may not know the answer to this, um, but my, my feeling is, is that it's giving the children a sense of something which will then stay with them into their secondary years. Um, and and I've, I've got a daughter who's, who's year nine as well. And I, I've seen that transition from the primary to the secondary and, and how the way of working changes. And, 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 and I don't know the evolution of that, but I'm not so sure evolution is the right word because it feels like we're not evolving in there, but that's probably a whole different podcast. Um, but in, t in, in terms of, how do you think children feel when they then get to secondary? That they they have this insightful idea that they're supported for themselves about what they want to do, and then they hit a secondary curriculum which is much more um, less creative in many ways, from my experience anyway. Um, and I guess, do you think that what you've been talking about and the way you've been able to have that environment in your school gives them the strength to kind of keep that going as they enter sort of key stage three or or do you think there's there's still that kind of rub of oh now I've kind of hit a different part of my life and it needs to look a different way no I do think I think there is a continuation of that definitely I do think it's something that they take with them um and again that's tied into a number of things I suppose in that that sense of being able to question things um I suppose is, is, is chipping away at that idea of, of utter conformity um, in a sense. So being able to, to, to question and to challenge uh, within a, um, a, a positive environment, I think is really important. And you see that in the children in terms of the work that we do. You know, we do huge amounts of work around social justice and things like that. Um, and we want our kids to have a voice. That's massively important to us. We want them to have a voice. And... Beyond that, to an extent, some kind of militancy about them almost. You know, these, these are children who we want them to be able to advocate strongly for themselves throughout their lives because for lots of our kids, nobody else will or few people will. And so they've got to be able to speak up. Um, and uh, there was a great example not so long ago of one of my, my eldest daughter's friends uh, and they were in secondary school and they were in a history lesson. And, and my daughter and, this, and her friend had both been to our school, uh, 
is to kind of clarify that they'd gone through our school and so it experienced this kind of curriculum if you like and they were learning about one of the the, the GCSE um, history topics it's on um, medicine through the ages and it deals with medieval medicine as one of the aspects I think it's, it's quite a long-standing GCSE history topic and they were learning about all these advances in medicine and, and what have you. And then this girl, she kind of, she stopped the teacher and said, how come, how come there's, there's no element of black history in the work that we're doing? How come we're learning about these developments in, in medicine in Britain, but we're not learning about stuff that went on during the, the golden age of Islam? Uh, in like the in like the ninth century um how come it's just about these like european people why is it just here um i just think go on girl because she's absolutely spot on how come we're not talking about that why are we not also studying what was going on in baghdad at that time how come we present uh, florence nightingale as the 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 mother of modern nursing and we don't talk about the, the first Muslim nurse, uh, Rafaida Al-Azlamiya, um, who was working at the time of the Prophet Muhammad um, and set up the very first mobile trauma units on battlefields and then went on to train nurses and medics herself. And she did all of that a thousand years before Florence Nightingale was even born, but she's never even mentioned. That's not to diminish what Florence Nightingale did, but there's a broader narrative here and it's a narrative that's frequently forgotten or kind of whitewashed and this girl in this classroom felt she could say it and the teacher all the teacher could give as a response was well it's not on the exam <laughs> but I think good on you for challenging because you know there's a girl she's I don't know she could well have said it completely independently of the work we've been doing at St Catherine's but my hope would be that we are positioning our children to to say exactly things like that, to challenge in a constructive way, uh, to ask those questions, how come we're not thinking about this? How come we're not talking about this? Uh, and to know that that's um, not just an all right thing to do, but the right thing to be doing. I, I absolutely love that. And, and, and I love it for many ways. One, like say, to have the articulation and, and the will to want to say, because it's incredibly important. And I think following on from that that response from a teacher because and, and that's what I hear all the time is the fact that we're here to pass the exams and you can understand then why children just think oh well I go to school I have to do it the teachers in that scenario are doing it because they have to do it in a certain way and, and they're not having the kind of the thought processes that you've had when you were talking about the curriculum whether that's because it's harder to do it in secondary whether it's because they haven't had the the option to do it or that people haven't had the conversations whatever that happens to be but I've, I, I love the progression of kind of having a child that's been like say whether or not she would have said it had she not been through your school but let, let I would, let's assume the fact that it's having that learning environment through there to then have that conversation in secondary school which then hopefully the more of those conversations you have there's a teacher somewhere that says why aren't we doing that and how can we teach the curriculum and we still have to do the GCSE subjects and all of that kind of stuff, but how can we do it in a different way? And whether that looks like the sort of way it might be in primary or whether it's completely different, it's already opened that line of inquiry. And then, like I say, from the ground up, things are then able to change and it then becomes a conversation based on the people who want to learn because they are learning and also the environment that the school wants to create. 
I think you're absolutely right. And I, I don't think it needs a wholesale change of exam specs in order to get there. I think you, you're spot on. I think it needs a history teacher or a head of department of history to go, do you know what? We know what the exam spec is and that's the content we'll teach and that's the content we want our kids to remember. But we can draw into that other narratives. Um, Christine Council used this term, the idea of hinterland as representing kind of the stories that we tell to give context to the stuff we want to be remembered. And there's no expectation necessarily that those children will remember the hinterland, the stories that we tell, but um, they can be as important, if not more important than, the, than the, the curriculum that's to be remembered. So alongside that preparation for exam spec, we can be telling those stories about those great Muslim medics from the, the golden age of Islam and the incredible hospitals they set up, when really the equivalent here at the same time in this country were just arms houses. Um, so the advances, you know, we can talk about that and it takes minutes and it's a story that the teacher tells the kids, um, but it's massively important. And then, like I say, the stuff to be remembered and, and retrieved and practiced over time will be the stuff for the exam. That's not a problem. But at least you've introduced that kind of thought that there's something bigger at play here. And I think the biggest takeaway from that is the fact that it happens now or tomorrow or the moment you decide to open that conversation or to mention that one thing you know because it sounds your daughter's about the same sort of age as mine we don't have time to wait for the department for education to suddenly change the curriculum or the way that it's taught but actually as educators we do have this immediateness of being able to have an effect you know it's a, I just remember the first time our middle child came home from school and just said, yes, we just had a ball thrown across the classroom in our physics lesson, you know, and it was like, whoa. <laughs> and then he talked about all the, the thought processes and the way they went around it, but it immediately got the attention. It was like, we don't do that in school, except we do because it's relevant. And, and you know, it just that just the whole dynamic changed in, in like one millisecond of one class. And then, yeah. you know, even just having that conversation about, what happened in school was kind of well this happened as opposed to yeah it was all right yeah, nothing you know that kind of thing and it, it just one one little one little action but a massive difference yeah and that's I mean that's it's something that upsets me as a parent I suppose when you 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 end up with that kind of just you do get those responses don't you and there's no you don't get that really strong sense of intrinsic motivation it's, um, you know, they're told to do stuff and they do it. And frequently the reason why they're told to do stuff is because it'll help them in the exam. And, and again, that, that does contrast starkly with the, the, the model that we use and the way in which we aim to build intrinsic motivation. You know, we don't want the kids producing beautiful work for us. That's not how we operate. You know, we're, we're massively interested in building authenticity around what we do, giving a genuine purpose for the work and, and then working with a critical audience. So the recognition that, that actually we should be pushing our children to, to exhibit, present their work beyond school. Um, there was a great book called An Ethic of Excellence by an American teacher called Ron Berger. Um, and it was essentially a book about how to build a culture of craftsmanship. Um, and I love that, that idea of craftsmanship within the context of school. Um, but one of his key arguments through the book was around the idea of audience and, and what should be the audience for our kids' work. Because children will produce work to a certain level for their teacher. They'll produce it perhaps for a slightly higher level for their parents, if they may be presenting in an assembly or something like that. But there's still a limit to it because they know for a fact that their teachers, more often than not, will give positive feedback. They know that 
pretty much 100% of the time, their parents will give positive feedback. No matter how crap their work is, they'll get positive feedback. What if we could break that? What if we could take the kids outside of that comfortable zone to a, to a critical audience? What if we could get them presenting their work to people who actually know what they're talking about? If we've got kids working on a design project, then they should be sharing their work with designers, with engineers, people who can look at their work and critique it and give them positive feedback, but give them steps to improve because that ups the ante massively in terms of the quality of work that children will produce, not because they're told to produce it, but because they're desperate for it to be right. We've had some great experiences that we've managed to build around exactly that philosophy, recognizing that we're limited as teachers. We're brilliant at what we do, but we're not designers. We're not artists. We're not engineers. We're not town planners. We're not wildlife experts necessarily. So can we draw these people into schools? We're not going to pay them because we haven't got any money. So we just kind of harass them to the point where they break down and then they just agree to come in but it happens and we've had some phenomenal outcomes as a result um we had um our, our stem lead becky it's fantastic she's a class teacher stem lead and we gave her time a few years ago now to try and get an engineer to work alongside every class in our school for the spring term which is when they're doing their geography and their design and their technology projects so heavily stem focused and in the first year, it was a nightmare, a real struggle. She's looking for 12 engineers across our school. And she managed to get maybe nine, 10 by just bombarding the university and the council and civil and kind of engineering companies and what have you, trying to get people in. And they, we just about got enough in. A couple of classes had to share. But when those people were in school, they realized what an absolute privilege it is to work with young people. They loved it. And so at the end of the, the, the term, they were asking us if they could come back the next year. And if they could bring their engineering friends, and it just became this cycle of thing that this, this thing that continued. And as a result, we've had some of our kids working with in, incredible people. We've got this super tram system in Sheffield. One year we had our year fours working with the team that designed it, this multi-million pound project, and they're there working on designs with our kids. We had a girl who came in from uh, the Rolls Royce factory in Derby, and her job is to design the parts for jet engines. And she brought some parts in and she brought the blueprints in. And the kids were fascinated by the blueprints, completely fascinated by them. And that then formed part of their project. They weren't working on parts for jet engines. They were working on a project that was effectively around the refugee crisis. And they were looking at conditions within refugee camps. And what came out of that work in terms of a design and technology project was the creation of water filters, something which is essential in refugee camps in terms of clean drinking water. And instead of the design and technology focus being around making the water filter, they became less interested in that. And it, it did happen, it took about a lesson. What they became obsessed with was creating the blueprints for the water filter. And they wanted their blueprints to look like the ones that the girl from Rolls-Royce brought in. They wanted to work in a professional light way. And that meant huge amounts of redrafting. You know, usually in primary schools, when we talk about redrafting, we're talking about writing. But what about redrafting in art or in design or in history or geography? Those kids, like I say, when we're talking about intrinsic motivation, that's it. They wanted their work to be like hers. And that's a powerful driver in schools. And I think, again, something that we can all in education work on more of. When I first started teaching 23 odd years ago, I can remember us having quite a lot of people in schools. We used to have like artists in residence and stuff. And then it just slowly faded away. And it wasn't our fault. We, we started to get hammered by 
the Department for Education, Ofsted, and, and they told us that the only things that mattered were English and maths. Um, and, and obviously, as a school, we responded to that and we made maths and English the priority and we lost some of those connections. But actually, we've got an opportunity. We, we should be trying to draw those people back in. Um, and for us, and for me personally, I suppose, it's, it's tied in with the idea of aspiration. You know, I've, I've, I've been frustrated for a long time with the, the state of careers education in this country, particularly if you are from a working class community or you're living or working in an area of high deprivation. Just think having a careers day or a careers week, it's pathetic. It's just, it's not good enough. What you need to be doing is getting those kids in from day one and then drip feeding them, getting them working alongside these experts, professionals, showing them what's out there in the world and doing that year after year after year. And that's how you get that building of aspiration. Um, there was a, a brilliant book produced, um, it was written by or put together by Ian Gilbert um, and uh, it was called The Working Class and it was basically just a, a, a combination of loads of different people contributing different chapters and, and the, the bit I wrote was about exactly that, about that idea of aspiration now, how we embed it properly within the curriculum. I just think that for anybody listening today, not only, well, my heart rate is my heart rate is higher than it was. You know, I'm excited about all those people that just think, yeah, that's well. Well, I think first of all, you identify with the fact that, of course, that's right. <laughs> but we may not be able to articulate it in the way that you have. But like you say, we know that's why we want to be educating young people. It's why we want to be part of that world and that community. And I think being able to hear it from somebody that's done it, created it evaluated it changed it morphed with it works with it every day i think is is just incredible and so thank you so much for spending the time and, and giving us those insights um and i think that sort of real world understanding of what is possible and starting from the point that you you mentioned right at the very beginning of the show i think is is absolutely brilliant so yeah thank you so much for sharing your time with us today it's been an absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. I'm just going to throw in, if it's all right, a quick plug for my books, uh, just because all of the stuff I've spoken about essentially makes up the content of my second book, which is called The Monkey Proof Box, uh, which is about curriculum, developing knowledge, independence, creative thinking. Um, my first book was called Gorilla Teaching, which is just about teaching, uh, but I'd strongly recommend people get a copy of both. Uh, and then, like I mentioned before, I work with this uh, incredible company called Independent Thinking and Ian Gilbert. Um, who, who it's, it's his company uh, and basically we're just a group of uh, associates from all sorts of different backgrounds but with the same philosophy I suppose we're desperate to just help kids with their thinking with their independence all sorts of different aspects of education uh, and like I say I, I spend uh, quite a bit of my time working with different schools up and down the country um, and, and like I say it's, it's an absolute privilege because I get to go to different places see, diff see how different people work pick up ideas and hopefully uh, help a little bit along the way too. Fantastic. And and just give us a, a shout out to your website as well so people can have that direct link both to the book and also, like say, those workshops and various things that you're doing in, in a visiting capacity. I will do. So uh, my website is uh, uk, and uh, independent thinking is uh, independentthinking.co.uk um, and you can get in touch with us uh, via either of those. Fantastic. Jonathan, thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.